And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Atlantic and Coastal, the Athletics ACC podcast. I'm Andy Bitter, Virginia Tech football beat writer for The Athletic and your host of Atlantic and Coastal. It is an all-ACC schedule for the first time this week. All five matchups in the league are, are ACC games and ACC games only. don't have Notre Dame sneaking in. Uh, so that means things are about to get very strange in the ACC, as it always does when they square off like that. To talk about it, we have just the guy to do it, uh, David Hale, who covers the ACC and covers it well for ESPN.com. I'm always smarter when I read some of David's stuff, and I really appreciate him taking the time and, and coming onto the podcast. David, welcome. Ah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I will send you your check for that fine endorsement. And uh, yeah, no, I'm excited about this all all ACC schedule because if you say things are about to get weird, I would I would posit that things have been pretty dang weird so far. So if they're going to get weirder, um, that's full on ACC powers right there. Well, David, you're in a room and you have a wonderful art behind you, and only assume that you are in some sort of tropical location right now in retirement. <laughs> Because you have sold all the Kenny Pickett stock that you bought years <laughs> ago that has to be worth millions. This is like getting in on Bitcoin 10 years ago uh, <laughs> on the Kenny Pickett trade. And I want to start there. Uh, do you feel some vindication about your man crush on Kenny Pickett? You were riding that horse long before anybody else was uh, on, that, on that part of it. Yeah. First of all, I like the idea that I'm in like some tropical oasis, but still doing this. Like, like the, when Mayor Quimby had the uh, the background of his mayoral office, but he was out on the beach, and like the uh, reggae drummer comes walking by. Like, hey, get the, get those like, steel drums out of the <laughs> mayor's office. Uh, yeah, man. Look, I, you know, I uh, a little bit of sort of my Kenny Pickett love the last few years has been a bit tongue in cheek because I was very high on Pitt, largely because I thought they had a great defense last year, which they did, um, and the offense. Well, I think Kenny Pickett is a fine quarterback, and, and Pat Narduzzi has sort of been beating the drum for the better part of three years now that he's got an NFL-caliber QB. The offensive numbers certainly haven't shown that, and part of it is just a weird approach to play calling, the fact that the O-line really has not run blocked well. All of those things are true still, oddly. Uh, the receivers still have a fairly high number of drops, all things considered, um, which has been a problem for Pitt all along. But suddenly it doesn't matter because Kenny Pickett has gone from pretty good quarterback in a system that maybe isn't playing to his strengths to uh, arguably the best quarterback in the country and a man who can do no wrong, um, which, again, I endorse that philosophy. Kenny Pickett can do no wrong. It's weird. We do this uh, sort of Heisman tally each week just to see where things go uh, at the athletic. And I do it and I'm like. I've got Kenny Pickett number one on my Heisman list. I don't know. Like, if you told me that two or three years ago, I'm like, get out of here. There's there's no chance this is the thing. He's never had more than 13 touchdowns in a season. He already has 19 this year. One interception, second highest passer efficiency in the country. Pitt has a number three scoring offense. 
And I have to say, I'm shocked. Like, I did not think this that Pitt was capable of this, uh, of doing this over the long haul, especially. I just, yeah, I kept hearing Pat Narduzzi say, this is an NFL quarterback. And I'm like, like how? Like Nathan Peterman was an NFL quarterback? <laughs> like, I, like, I don't know if that's what the level they're talking about, but he's playing so well right now. Uh, I mean, I, I, maybe this goes without saying, but are you a full believer in Pitt? Because Pitt has a way of, you know, you start to fully believe in them and then they just kind of kick you right in the junk because that's what Pitt does. <laughs> yes. Pitt is my favorite fan base, by the way, uh, because of exactly that. The, their fans are all too well aware that they will get kicked in the junk at some point this season. As somebody who grew up a Cubs and Eagles fan and I was so used to disappointment, I found a catharsis. Uh, with pit fans who understand it, like enjoy your enthusiasm while you have it because the other shoe is about to drop and it is going to land on your balls is really essentially what it is. Um, but look, it's, it's fascinating because I'm certainly not going to go so far out and do a limb as to say that Pitt is a top 10 team after they lost to Western Michigan. Like it's an inexcusable loss for it. But you start looking at some of the advanced metrics. Our FPI, for example, has Pitt, I think, at 10. SP Plus that Bill Conley does is somewhere in that same neighborhood. Um, the underlying metrics suggest this is not a fluke, that this is legitimately a very good football team. Um, I, I will honestly say I think this week will be a really interesting matchup because uh, Pitt still does not run the ball well, and Virginia Tech's Secondary is probably the best that, that Pitt is going to face this season. Um, so all of that adds up to if Kenny Pickett does it this week, then show me who he's not going to do it against. Uh, and that certainly makes things interesting. Now, again, it's weird because I think Pitt has always felt to me like a Big Ten team, right? And, and the fact that they have consistently hired coaches from the Big Ten to coach them sort of echoes that. But this year doesn't look anything like a Big Ten team. They look like old school Big 12 team right now. And it's an interesting dynamic in a year in which really the rest of the top tiers of teams, for the most part, uh, outside of maybe Ohio State, are really defense first, which is a, another thing that we haven't seen in a while. So it's it's a weird thing of, of Pitt sort of zigging while everybody else is zagging. Well, there's a great transition because I want to lead that into the game this week. They're at Virginia Tech. I'll be covering this game. Pitt is a four and a half point favorite right now. That line... Some places started around a pick 'em, I think. I think some places even had Virginia Tech favored to open the week, which was crazy. It must have been, they must have just gotten slaughtered on that. Cause then I saw the line swing completely the other way to pit by like six or something like that. And now it's maybe come back a little bit the other way to, to four and a half. Uh, the winner of this game is clearly in charge of the Coastal Division. They'll be the only two and no team there. Uh, a lot of teams already have two losses uh, on that side of the, the ACC right now. Uh, is this one as simple as can Virginia Tech keep up with Pitt on the scoreboard? Because I look at the way Virginia Tech is playing offense right now, and I'm having a hard time figuring out a way that the Hokies can score enough to win this game. Well, here's here's where Pitt's biggest problems were the past few years is um, unnecessary turnovers that were just kind of fluky and weird or based on just kind of forcing a ball, and those haven't happened this year. But but Virginia Tech's defense is good enough to create some of those opportunities. And I'm, I'm a big believer that you don't go out there and create takeaways. You can go out and create opportunities for takeaways. The rest is just luck. So 
Some of it is Pitt is probably having better luck this year, and some of it is fewer of those opportunities have been created. But I think Virginia Tech's defense is certainly good enough to do it. The other thing is that the, the run game has been so bad that that one-dimensionality with, with Pitt has shown up most often in the red zone and in goal line situations. And so you see a team that routinely for years before this was settling for field goals or even, you know, uh, turning over on downs and stuff like that when they should be getting seven. And that's the, that's the way you beat Pitt is you, you take a, you essentially steal a scoring, a score away from them by stopping them in the red zone uh, or by getting a a takeaway in plus territory. And I I certainly think that Virginia tech is capable of doing that, but unlike past years, this pit team isn't getting, you know, three, four, five scoring opportunities a game. They're getting six, seven, eight scoring opportunities a game and largely have taken advantage of them. So if that's the pit that we're going to see against Virginia Tech, it is hard for me to look at Virginia Tech's offense and say, given what we've seen through these first uh, five games of the year, that this is a team capable of doing that. I don't see that. But again, I think it's still early enough to, to reasonably ask whether what we've seen from Pitt is an outlier or it is their true identity for this year. This is sort of the uh, rowdy, rowdy Piper quote, the Coastal Division. Just when you have all the answers, I change the questions. That like we're, we're talking about great this, quotes, yes. We're talking about this like this is like Pitt. Obviously, it's Pitt in this. And when whenever we have an obvious outcome in the <laughs> Coastal Division, it, the fate spits in our face about that thing and goes the other way. I think it's a, a really interesting. I think the Hokies will come out and try to go as slow as possible try to control the clock. They've done that a couple times in games, did that against UNC earlier this year, last year against Clemson worked for about a half before the dam burst in that game. But this is such a strange Virginia tech offense that just cannot move the ball. They just can't do it consistently. They have not been able to run the ball. This is not a team pit that you want to not be able to run the ball against. You have to loosen things up a little bit. And they haven't been able to take advantage of those, uh, you know, big shots down the field. And Pitt's going to challenge you on that. They're going to stack the box. They're going to play up tight uh, defensively and go, hey, go over the top. See if you can beat us. And the Hokies have not been able to do that. I'm curious. And, and I'm, you know, I cover Virginia Tech, so I'm up close to it. And sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees uh, when you're up that close. What, what are your thoughts on Virginia Tech? Just sort of big picture with this program. And, uh, you know, obviously Fuente came in this season on the hot seat, however you want to uh, describe that. Uh, seemed to get off of it with the UNC win. And now you lose to a hated rival in West Virginia. You lose last minute to Notre Dame, blowing a, a lead at the end of the game like that. Uh, it all of a sudden feels like maybe the temperature is back up a little bit here. Yeah. And look, it doesn't help either that North Carolina has kind of fallen off of a cliff too. And that win suddenly doesn't seem quite so sexy anymore. Um, you know, the flip side of it is you can certainly make the case that if they score in a goal line situation that they probably should have scored on against West Virginia, and they don't give up that two point conversion on just a ridiculous catch uh, against Notre Dame, they're undefeated right now. And we're talking about a much different scenario around Virginia Tech. Um, so I, I tend to be a little bit of an apologist in this sense, and that I don't think things are as sky is falling as maybe some Virginia Tech fans do. But the bigger issue, I think, if you're looking at what is the future for Virginia Tech, and particularly for Justin Fuente, is that he really went out on a limb this year in trying to establish a different narrative for the program. And that different narrative largely went, last year was an outlier because of COVID, don't think about it at all. 
this year we have our quarterback, the guy I wanted all along and just couldn't start. And this year you're going to see who we really are. Well, A, we haven't seen very much of that. B, his quarterback is really not doing anything special. And, and you can blame Braxton Burmeister for that or not. I think there's a lot of, of extenuous circumstances there that, that play into that. But, but certainly the passing game has not been good and the running game has not been good. So what's good? And then, of course, the third piece of that puzzle is that the quarterback he didn't want, the guy he threw under the bus from last year, is at Tennessee lighting it up right now. The Hennessy's offense. Uh, so, again, is any of that real? I mean, we're, we're six weeks into a season, and, and it's the our first six weeks is always also a little off because you have teams playing a lot more out of conference and all of those things. It's a small sample size. I don't know that you want to take anything from this and say it is definitively real. This is what we should be making a judgment on. But let's face facts is that Justin Fuente entered the season behind the eight ball. Justin Fuente entered the season needing to create a different narrative. He sold that narrative all offseason about Braxton Burmeister and having the offense that he always wanted. And it's not coming to fruition. So, you know, if the starting point was, well, we're on the fence 50-50 on Justin Fuente, and this was where things are, I think you'd still be 50-50. But the fact that the starting point was he's got to keep his job, he's got to do something to keep his job. And at this point, all those things he's promised has not really come to fruition. I would say that the, the, the from the outside looking in, it is a very difficult position for him to be in. And if things don't really turn around and and, and Seriously, with Pitt, probably need to turn around this week. Um, it, it's going to be an uphill battle the rest of the way. Yeah, it's a very strange uh, situation to be in because, like you mentioned, they are very close to still being unbeaten right now. And if they are, we're, they're probably a top 10 team. And we're talking about how what a great job he's done with all this stuff. Uh, as it is, the offense can't really move the ball. They, they're facing a game in Pitt. If they lose, they're 3-3. Three and three. And they've given up the the sort of trump card they had in the Coastal Division by getting that early season win against UNC. So it uh, will be an interesting game. Uh, we've covered it all with that one. So I, I want to move on to the next one. Obviously, the big story this week in the ACC was De'Ara King. Uh, decided to have shoulder surgery, uh, is out for the year. Uh, Jake Garcia is also out for Miami, which means it's t- the Tyler Van Dyke show uh, <laughs> in Miami uh, he was a, a pretty you know, well sought after recruit in 2020, a top 250 player, uh, threw for 203 yards, a t- t- touchdown against UVA, looked very iffy in the first half, came around in the second half as Miami almost came and won that game. Uh, you look at the Hurricanes right now, and I just wonder can Miami avoid this thing spiraling on them? It seems <laughs> like there's something new every day with the Canes, and that, that feels like a team where things start to go bad. You've seen it in the past where they just sort of pack it in sometimes. And to me, that's the biggest question is, is how much fight does this Miami team have the rest of the way? And it's funny because I, I mean, before the season, I, I was not hyping the Miami train. I thought they were probably a bit overranked where they were. I thought they were a good team, but not a great team. A, probably a eight or nine win team if everything goes well. And, and the biggest thing I said was, you're going to probably get whipped by Alabama in the opener. How do you respond to that? Um, because again, as you mentioned, this is a Miami program that historically has had a lot of quit in them, um, for many years after they'd lose to Florida state, that was the end of their season. Uh, a few years ago, you know, that they, they had that terrible end of the season under Mark Richt and then a terrible end of the season in Manny Diaz's first year, all of those things can kind of, you know, they repeat themselves for a reason. Uh, and you've got to stamp that out within the locker room. Well, this is probably a worse situation than any of those have been. So you wonder how they respond. 
And uh, look, I, I, as we talk about hot seat coaches, Manny Diaz is certainly squarely on the hot seat. I struggle a lot more with this one because I think Manny does a lot of things well. And I think he's very thoughtful about how he wants to build a program. And sometimes you put in all the right input and still get the wrong output. And when you have that situation, like that to me is always that when you're, when you're talking about firing a coach should always be the conversation that you're having. Are you unhappy with the output or are you unhappy with the input? Because if you're unhappy with the output, but you're happy with the input, then you need to ask, have, am I wrong about what I think the input needs to be? Or do we just need to give it more time and the outcome will come around? Um, and I, I tend to fall in that category with, with Manny Diaz. I think he's doing the right things. They just haven't gotten the outcome this, that they want yet. And as you said, when you have a season where you've lost your starting quarterback, their, their center is out now, their top two running backs missed. One of them, the guy, Don Chaney, that they plan to start is going to miss the whole season. Knighton missed the first five games. Um, all of those things tend to coalesce into uh, a problem where it's going to be hard to move the football. I, you understand that. Um, but the other problem, when, and, and this is the other thing that Virginia Tech is sort of in, is like when the, fan, when the tide turns with the fan base and you no longer have fan support, it becomes this narrative unto itself. At, at what point are you just better cutting the strings and moving on because everybody else has already decided that you should move on? It, it is a difficult situation. In Blake James' situation at Miami, too, he's the guy who hired Manny. He's the guy who said they were going to have a, a national search and then quickly went and hired the guy who was already there. Um, so he's a little bit on on account for this too. You know, if he decides to make a change, that's as much pointing the finger at him as it is at, at Manny. So uh, to me, it's a very fascinating situation. I think if Miami can get to bowl eligibility this year, that that should be considered a win. And I certainly would keep Manny after that. If it spirals and we're talking about a team that finishes four and eight, which is entirely possible because I don't know that there's another game on this schedule that you say is a definitive win for Miami. Um, boy, that's, that becomes a very difficult conversation to have. You mentioned spirals. This is Miami's next three games at UNC this week versus NC State after that and at Pitt. I mean, they're not going to be favored in any of those games. That's a tough stretch with the way those teams are playing this year. So uh, I, I would say this about Manny Diaz. I would not go out and pull an Al Golden in any of these games. I would not lose 58 to nothing yeah. and give yeah. your AD a reason for it. And you're playing UNC this week, and we'll get to UNC in a second here. You know, the Tar Heels have not uh, played great. They've not been the team that everybody thought, but they also embarrassed Miami last year in that game. I don't know if they're capable of doing that this year, but for, for Manny Diaz's sake, I would suggest not going out and losing 62 to 26 and giving up 700 yards, whatever the final score yeah. was. I think that was what it was last year. Well, without, without question, there's sort of three things, I think, that definitively help Manny. Uh, don't get embarrassed. Don't lose to Florida State. And make a bowl. If you if those three things happen, then I think he's okay. But if any one of those three things doesn't happen, then we start having some real worries. And and boy, if you're Miami, you thought at least Florida State was the guaranteed win on your schedule the rest of the way, and even that don't look so true anymore. Well, I'll tell you, he can hit the trifecta with one game. He could lose embarrassingly against Florida State to knock him out of bowl eligibility all in <laughs> one game. So that that would a lot could be riding on that at game. At least he'll be efficient on that. I give him that. Turn to UNC. Uh, they are seven and a half point favorites in this Miami game at home. They're coming off a 35 to 25 loss against Florida State. They were 17 and a half point favorites in that game. I, that was the game last weekend that just 
stunned me. And maybe I shouldn't be because the Tar Heels went down to Tallahassee last year and looked terrible in a loss. And Mac Brown is 0-11 against Florida State. Maybe I should have taken that into account when I'm looking at that. Mac Brown had, by the way, had one of the greatest quotes uh, of just twisting things around and throwing it back on the media. <laughs> the national media expectation, the expectations for us to be a top 10 team were wrong. So I guess we should all be critical of the media for picking us too high because we're not that good. So you guys all screwed it up. Did he say this while wearing a hot dog costume and like trying to turn things around on people that, that, I mean, that's an all timer of a quote of turning this around and say, it's not me. It's you guys that screwed this up. <laughs> yeah. It's the reverse Costanza. It's the, not me. It's you. Uh, it's, Man, it's so good. This is that's a veteran move right there for Mac Brown. And it's he's a Hall beautiful. of Famer. He can do it. He can pull that out yeah. of the yeah. back pocket. I mean, here's the thing, though, is I don't think we were that wrong. But this team should be better. So, like we just talked about Miami, we were wrong about Miami. I think, by and large, the the media, the monolithic media that predicts all these things, overhyped Miami. They were never going to be that good. I don't think we were that wrong about North Carolina. They're running the ball really well. They have still a guy who could very well be the first quarterback drafted in Sam Howell. They have talent at receiver. Josh Downs might be, I mean, he's, we have him on our midseason All-America team. Like, they've been recruiting really well. They still have Tony Grimes on defense. They still have Jeremiah Gemmel. They've got good players. Why isn't it working? To me, we weren't. We were probably wrong about them being a top-10 team, but we weren't wrong about them being good. And you certainly didn't, you know, it wasn't, the media who made them a what close to three touchdown favorite against against Florida State and they go out and lose. That's that's reasonable expectations that they're not meeting. Um, and and to me, I, I I struggle to kind of explain it because again, I think Phil Longo is a great coach. I think Jay Bateman knows what he's doing on defense. They're recruiting good players. They've got established talent. Like explain to me how this team can be losing to Georgia Tech and Florida State. It makes no sense. And they did it last year too. Yeah, I mean, until they lost to Florida State, I'm like, I'm not counting North Carolina out of this coastal division. I mean, they, they're a talented team, maybe, you know, just got, you know, first game kind of thing against Virginia Tech. The Georgia Tech one just the thing spiraled on them. But the, then it happens to Florida State, and Florida State had nothing going for it, really. I mean, I know they were coming off a win, but it was not the most impressive win beating Syracuse the week before. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I can't figure it out with the Tar Heels. It's a team that's it's very difficult to figure out. And for Miami's sake, I, I think Miami has to like the fact that they've been up and down yeah. uh, might give them a chance coming into this game. I'm curious, how much credit do we give to Florida state last week? That is a good win. And that's not one that I thought they could go in there and do And, and Jordan Travis looked great. He had five touchdowns. He accounted for, they were down early and you, you go, Hey, this is just going to be another one of these blowout types game. They come storming back and win the game. I mean, there's still two and four uh, Florida state is the outlook is not that great, but this is something to build off of at least. Oh yeah. Without question. And and this is the, the takeaway for me. If you're Florida state, if you were expecting Florida state to be good this year, you were wearing some garnet and gold colored glasses. They were never going to be good this year. Um, but what you didn't want to see was pure embarrassment. So week one for them against uh, Notre Dame was, really the archetype for what you hope out of Florida state for this year as a Florida state fan, we're competitive. The games are close. They're fun to watch. And we put up, we, we fight, you know, we fight even against good teams. And then they go out and lose to Jacksonville state and all that's wiped out the window. Uh, terrible. And then a terrible performance against Wake Forest too. Um, played better against Louisville, but got way behind early. Um, 
and you think, okay, this is a team that's just cashed it in. And and under Willie Taggart, that's what, ha- what would have happened. A lot of what we saw last year was guys walking out the door the first chance they had. Um, what you're seeing this year is not a good football team, but it is a football team that seems to represent a genuine culture shift within the locker room and some foundational areas of improvement. They're running the ball really, really well. And part of that's having a running quarterback in, in Jordan Travis, but their O-line is run blocking better than it has in a long time. And they're, they've got some talent. Josh, uh, Jay Sean Corbin is, is playing really, really well. Um, they're still very limited in some areas. They don't have great linebacking core. They don't have a great O-line. They don't have anything at receiver, really. Um, those were all things that they needed to be built through recruiting. And the biggest thing is, if you're Florida State, have you, have you impressed enough, shown enough character, enough fight, and not been embarrassed enough so that you can hold together a very good recruiting class for next year and build some real enthusiasm around a program moving forward. Because enthusiasm is the thing that is really missing at Florida State. Because even in the dreadful years under Bowden, that last really decade under Bowden, there was never a year where Florida State fans went into it thinking like, well, we're going to stink this year. Like the idea of where Florida State is now was unconscionable, like unthinkable. No one would have ever guessed that Florida State fans were expecting to miss a bowl before the season even started. And that's reality. So if you can sort of regain some of that enthusiasm to where Florida State fans think next year will be better and they rightfully believe that as opposed to just like, you know, (laughs) drank the Kool-Aid, then I think you've made real progress at FSU. And they're doing that. They're doing that. All right, I want to move to the, the rest of the, the weekend slate here a little bit quicker through these next three games. NC State, uh, three-point favorite at Boston College. I saw that line, and I, was, I thought that sounded a little low. Uh, and then I, remembered yeah. it's, then I remembered it's NC State, and you can't really trust them. And I know NC State fans probably don't like me because I say that all the time when I come into this podcast. But I have to admit, they, they look pretty good this year. They look like they're pretty solid on both sides of the ball. All the talk is about Wake Forest, and it should be. They're 4-0 in the ACC, and they're out front there. But NC State is the team that has the Clemson win already. I mean, they're sitting in a great spot uh, with, uh, obviously, the bulk of their ACC schedule ahead of them here. What do you make of the Wolfpack, and, and uh, do you like them in this game at BC, uh, playing without, yeah, obviously, Phil Dracovic not playing? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because they're a little like Pitt in it. Like, you want to like them, but then you say, like, <laughs> how did they go down there and get their butts whooped by Mississippi State? Uh, it, it's a veteran team that doesn't beat itself very easily. And I think that alone in this year's ACC is uh, a big advantage. Like if, if you're not going to go out there and screw something up, like it, how many teams in this league have enough to just beat you head to head? I think that's a big thing for, for NC State. This is an, You're right. This is one of the point spreads, though, that I look at it and I say, Vegas knows something that I don't here. Because right. I, I feel like NC State should probably be a touchdown favorite in this game. And lots of shining lights signals saying like, uh, Ooh, watch out for this one. Um, I, I look at Boston college and, and I, I've said from the beginning, I don't know how they move the football consistently without Phil Dracovic, because this was a team that couldn't run the ball last year, but they do have a good O line. And, and, and it might just be a scheme thing where like Jeff Halfley switches from being that let's chuck the ball around with Phil Dracovic to let's get back to more of a Steve Adazio running game and, and chew up some clock and, and, you know, we're going to give you as few opportunities to beat us as you can. That's not a bad way to win seven games or six games. And it could certainly be enough to beat NC State. So I I look at this and and to me, I I don't know, I haven't quite picked a winner on this one yet, but I will say I would not be shocked at all if BC wins this football game. 
This next one uh, you should be very interested in because you are a professional pot stirrer when it comes to Clemson. That's your uh, reputation. Yes. And uh-huh. you Syrac- Syracuse grant, correct? Yes, that is correct. So uh, Clemson at Syracuse. Clemson is a 14-point favorite in this game. And, and again, I'll ask the question that I asked when they were 16-and-a-half-point favorites against Boston College. Are we sure Clemson can score 14 points <laughs> in this game? I mean, we talk about Syracuse. Syracuse has a very, very good defense this year. We don't think about Syracuse the, that way all the time. They've got a, a running back in Sean Tucker who's incredible. Uh, so they've got a running game. They've got a defense, and Clemson's coming in and is not scoring a whole lot of points. Um what do we think about this one? Because that's that's a lot of points going up there into the dome. Yeah, it's what it's funny because I keep thinking Clemson has actually failed to cover the spread in their last six games, and I'm like, how that can't be? The the the, the tide will turn. There has to be one. And and you start listening to, I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks. I'm working on a story on Clemson right now about like what's really wrong. And I think there are some deep-seated things that are potentially problematic. But for the most part, most of their scoring woes have come from just like a throw that didn't get made or a block that didn't get made. And it's not maybe as far off as it looks on the field. And so I uh, am one of those types of people. It's just like we were just talking about, like, you know, when, <laughs> you, you, you see the sun come up every day and you think, nah, one day it's not going to come up. I'm betting on that this time. That's how I feel about Clemson right now. I'm going to bet that the sun doesn't come up tomorrow. They're going to go out and put up 40 against Syracuse and win. I, I That's what I'm picking. I, there's a very good chance that I'm wrong. And they Clemson has beaten themselves a ton. They make everything look hard. And then the other thing to take away from that is you talk about Syracuse's defense. The biggest thing that they have going for them defensively at Syracuse is they're not making anything easy. They are not giving up chunk plays. I think I had them – I do – I calculate explosive play rate every week for teams, and I think I had them 10th in the country or something like that, an explosive play rate on their defense. They do not give up chunk plays. You have got to work your way down the field against them and show me how Clem- – at any point where Clemson has put together a drive of like five or six plays without screwing something up. So um, I'm just – this is strictly on my part a pick of saying like, Absolutely nothing suggests this is the week Clemson puts it all together. So I'm going to say this is the week Clemson puts it together. Yeah, I might stick with the uh, just take the points with uh, uh, Syracuse here and just go the dome. The dome does weird things to people up there. I've gone and seen Virginia Tech just play horribly, like good Virginia yeah. Tech teams <laughs> go up there and play horribly. So Clemson, probably, Clemson too. Yeah, exactly. Other game on the schedule here, Duke at Virginia. Virginia's an 11-point favorite in this game. UVA has really owned this series of late. They've won six straight. The average margin is 15.8 points. I think the closest game was seven points. Uh, UVA is uh, got the best field goal defense in the country, apparently. They, they win a game on a missed field goal, the doink that Miami had, and then they come back and take the lead against Louisville and win on a, a field goal miss at the buzzer. Granted, it was a really long field goal, but man, they're living dangerously with these <laughs> wins. But I feel like at two and two in the ACC, they still sort of have that sleeperish potential. And then this is a game I think they should uh, handle pretty easily. I, I don't think Duke gives them too much trouble in this one. Uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. I, Virginia, Tech, or Virginia falls squarely into one of my favorite categories of evaluating football teams, which is, are they the worst good team in the country or the best bad team in the country? Because they're one or the other. I'm not sure which side of that line of demarcation that they're on. It's a fine line. Yeah, it's a very fine line. But you watch them and sometimes and you say, this is complete luck. I don't know how they're doing this. They can't run the football. They've gotten lucky to beat the last two teams that they beat. They had no business winning those games. On the other hand, you watch them and you're like, Brennan Armstrong, man, that guy's like Superman. And they've got some players on defense. And Manny Alonso, like, just like 
is devouring offensive linemen and maybe they're really good. I, I don't know. I think from play to play, it changes. I, um, I think they win this one pretty easily. I still wouldn't necessarily write them off in the coastal. I think this is a team that could win. I mean, they've got pieces and that offense, like I can't wrap my head around the, how Bronco Mendenhall's offense has turned into like uh, greatest show on turf type of offense. They just <laughs> chuck the ball around and score a bunch of points. And I, it makes those, they, this is literally like, I feel like uh, I had like a groundhog day conversation with Bronco Mendenhall each of the last like three years of saying like, well, you got a lot of pieces on this team, but no explosive playmakers. You just, you know, you got nobody who's getting chunk plays. And he's always like, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. We're going to figure it out eventually. Now he's got like nine guys that do it that came out of nowhere. I have no idea how to explain Virginia uh, other than I think they're going to probably wipe the floor with Duke. I did, the, the amazing thing is they're doing it without Lavelle Davis. And yeah. You had a six, seven receiver. To, skill guy. Yeah. You had that towering guy and you pair him with Jelani Woods and you have these two just twin towers that you can throw the ball to. That offense could be that much better. Uh, the last thing I want to do with you here, and, and uh, you always do kind of an interesting thing when you rank teams, you kind of group them into tiers. And uh, I feel like that's a more, a better way of doing uh, these kind of rankings than just going top 25. Cause people will look at a top 25 and they go, well, eight is better than 11. And therefore they should be much higher when essentially those teams are the same team. You just have to put them in a right, certain order. Right. If you were grouping the ACC right now, who do you put in that top tier? <laughs> this is i think nobody i think there's an empty tier at an the top empty of spot the, yeah like i mean even if you don't want to say like you don't have to be clemson right what who clemson has been for the last decade you don't have to be that to be at the top of the acc i'm not sure that there's even a team that is clearly like the team that challenged clemson every year so i, I mean i guess if you have to put somebody at the top like the weird thing is I think Clemson and North Carolina are still the two most talented teams in the, in the conference, but they're not playing that way. Um, like if you say like, who's the one team you don't want to have to face, like rank them in that order, I would probably still go Clemson and North Carolina because I think they're capable. Their ceilings are the highest, but we're not seeing that. So I, I guess I would probably say like tier one for me right now would probably be Pitt, Wake, and NC State, maybe, and round about that that order. And I, but I don't. I feel like they're tier tier two teams that just we don't have tier one, so we'll move them up. That's exactly who I had in that top tier, and I don't know. I, I think I'm like you. I think there's an empty space and, and vacant, and then that next tier. And right. I call that tier the uh, now's your chance because. Yeah. This is their chance. I mean, we, we these these programs have been waiting for Clemson and you know before that Florida State to sort of fall on their face or come back to the pack. This is as good of a chance as ever as you're going to have to win the ACC. We don't talk about those teams a lot, and I think they're all very solid in many regards, and they they do a lot of things right. Do they have that ceiling that Clemson could maybe hit, or that ceiling that North Carolina could hit this year? Uh, perhaps not. Perhaps they can't get to that level and, and kind of do it up. But I mean, this is a year where solid but not spectacular could very easily win the ACC. I, I think it'll be an interesting thing uh, to watch going forward. This is what I had. I had those three. I had sailing on its rep Clemson next because people yeah. are always like, I think people are always like, they'll figure it out eventually. And I don't know. Well, the defense is still so good. I mean, the fact that their offense has been horrendous and they're still three and two because that defense is so good. Like the defense, if you could put like Pitt's offense with Clemson's defense, you'd have a championship contender, but that's not how it 
you know, that's not how it's done. Well, David, uh, I have to ask you this uh, just to finish up. Are you going to bounce back on your picks this week on ESPN.com? Because I know both you and Andrea Adelson are being schooled by Andrea's daughter uh, in the picks. I don't know what you were thinking, bringing her into the mix to do these picks. It's like it was inevitable that this 10 year old was going to beat both of you in the picks. You know, I'd like to think this is a really a broad uh, social experiment that we're doing right now. That this is, you remember when uh, that time when Joaquin Phoenix pretended to be like a crazy person for like yeah, the a big year? bushy beard and yeah, went on Letterman yeah but it was all, it was all just a ruse to like promote some uh, project he was working on. I'd like to tell you that that's what's going on right here. This is all a deeply thought out performance art project. Um, and so that's what I'm going to tell you that there's, there's really, there's, there's broad socioeconomic implications to this, that it's really up to you and your listeners to figure out. It's not here. I'm not here to explain this to you. It's, it's some sort of you're, you're conning us into thinking this and we're like, you're, you're walking away from ESPN headquarters with a limp and then the camera pans back and all of a sudden <laughs> you, you walk straight and it's like, oh my gosh, hail, they, they, Mess with us this whole time. Of course, that's. I was Kaiser. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the ending of Usual Suspects. But if you haven't (laughs) seen the movie at this point, what are you waiting for? It's only been about thirty years like that. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, go follow David on Twitter. You'll be smarter for doing so. Uh, Enjoy all of his work all the time. I look forward to it when it comes out at a David Hale Joint. Uh, going with the the Spike Lee is that the play on the Spike Lee joint thing? Me and Spike Lee have so much in common that it just it resonates. I think. I, yeah, I feel like you're you're one in the same. So, David, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Andy. Thanks for having me. All right, that's another show in the books, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, it's going to be a full slate in the ACC uh, this week. We'll be back again to talk about it next week. Uh, go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to The Athletic. You can listen to this podcast ad-free there. Uh, always good deals on there. I think the 50% deal is still going right now. 50% off deal, I should say, is still going on right now. Go to theathletic.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter at AndyBitterVT. I'll be covering the Pitt-Virginia Tech game. And we'll do this again next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.